This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Spiritual Evolution, How Science Redefines Our Existence. And the author is Dr. Chad Kennedy. And Dr. Kennedy, welcome to Author Talk. Thank you, Steve. It's great to be here. Well, it's fantastic to talk to you today. This is going to be a soul-expanding, uh, a mind-expanding experience, uh, stretching <laughs> and all the above. <laughs> you, <laughs> yeah. tackle, you tackle big subjects. <laughs> yeah, the first time around, you know, said, you don't want to do anything small. I said, okay. So. Okay, well, you haven't. Well, let me, let me read what you've written uh, about your book. Spiritual evolution creates a model for existence incorporating scientific discovery to answer age-old questions. Why are we here? What is spirituality? Does God exist? You also answer questions of combining scientists and spiritual leaders, opening up the gates of possibility to creating a world in which all of these people or systems can find common ground and work together peacefully toward the common goal of unity. So you have purpose here. The, you know, there's purpose here of unity Absolutely. and understanding. Absolutely. Tell us about yeah. your background, Chad. Well, I actually have a, a degree in biomedical engineering and bioengineering, uh, PhD, master's, and then had undergrad in uh, mechanical engineering, uh, which required a lot of studies in science and uh, physics and, and those types of things. Also did a lot of uh, extra studies, uh, studied with uh, Stephen Wolfram, um, who's the creator of Mathematica, um, who also uh, worked with some great scientists down at Caltech, um, and uh, did a lot of studies in complexity and some things called new kind of science and computational science, and basically kind of a jack of trades rather than a specialist of any particular thing. Um, so from that background, I, I've always been interested in in deep spiritual questions and and tried to find ways of how does all this knowledge that we keep building up. I mean, we're just creating incredible amounts of knowledge daily. Um, how does that fit into these bigger questions? Are we any closer to answering any of these fundamental questions that have been around since the dawn of, dawn of mankind, really? Well, you say that in your book, uh, you don't fear to question the rules. What, what do you mean by that? Yes. <laughs> well, what I've found, and, and it's partly my experience because, you know, the most personal thing I can pull from are, are the experiences I had growing up and, and some people that I'm aware of, um, is that I, I was baptized Catholic, of course, when I was a, a young child before I even knew what Catholic meant. Um, and a lot of the things that I find for me and for a lot of other people is that we have all these rules that are imposed upon us, um, mostly by our cultures, our, our religious institutions, um, our parents, you know, our direct um, um, guardians and folks like that. And we have to take a serious look at, okay, where, where did these rules come from, um, one, and then 
do they apply all the time and, and when do they apply, how do they apply, and, and most of them do, um, but we also need to not be afraid to question the rules and question, you know, what are we, what's the purpose of these rules and what's the wisdom behind them because I have a fundamental belief that the wisdom that we find in many religious institutions um, may be, in fact, more important than the literal context in which they're written. And I think that goes a long way to, uh, again, like you're talking about the, the idea of unity, of trying to get away from our arguments of, well, is this particular fact correct or that particular fact correct? And, and as we've seen historically, uh, we basically argue over who's right. And really, the correct or incorrectness of the, the history is not nearly as important as understanding the wisdom behind the message. Um, and so I... I advocate in this book and um, to anyone out there who is uh, searching for answers that you need to be able to question everything. And if you really are looking for an omnipotent, uh, you could call it source, God, Allah, what, what uh, the name that you have, um, that 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 God, if you will, is going to encourage you and want you to question everything because otherwise why would you have the capacity to think? So why would we have the capacity to perform science experiments and things like that? So I, I think it should be something that should be encouraged um, rather than discouraged, which seems to happen a lot in, in some uh, institutions. Well, and you uh, advocate that people let go of their current religious or spiritual knowledge temporarily when trying to spiritually evolve. Now, Correct. That's, that's going to be very difficult for people to let go, isn't it? <laughs> It's it's extremely difficult, and and part of it is that fear. Um, I know from personal experience, um, there's a lot of hangups that we learn at an early age. You know, when you're about five years old, you kind of have a quite a concept of of things as your parents have taught you. Um, yet you don't really have any rational reason to know or believe anything otherwise, or even argue with what you're being told. And you know, it, whether you're getting fire and brimstone, you know, that you're going to go to a terrible place afterward if you don't follow X, Y, Z. Um, there's a lot of threats to not question and not to try to look at anything in a different way. Um, and that's a big hurdle to get over. I, I know it was for me very personally because uh, in Catholicism, there's a lot of guilt built into uh, the religious institution, and there's a lot of guilty feelings if you're questioning, you know, and I remember nights being a young child going, you know, I, I know what they've told me, but this is this is different than what I'm experiencing in nature. We grew up in the mountains, so uh, we actually had some half-wolves, half-dogs uh, growing up, and, and just the experiences being in the mountains and, and seeing things in nature were conflicting with what I was being taught, and that conflict was was very difficult for me to get over personally. And so um, I think in the, the first part of the book is really about opening people to possibilities, trying to get beyond those anchors that are tying us down. And I do say temporarily because I don't think you should throw the uh, uh, morphic, or I guess speaking, we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. But you do have to basically put aside your preconceived notions for a time for you to be able to learn anything new. So it kind of goes with the wisdom that, you know, if, you, if your cup is already full, you can't learn anything new. 
So you need to be able to empty your cup. It's the same type of analogy, in the same your, type of metaphor. In your book, you mentioned three classifications of human behavior, makers, destructors, and watchers. So if you could yes. talk about those and why they are important to the nature of spirituality. Yeah, um, and that was just, I was trying to use terms that didn't have a lot of dogma uh, built in them. Uh, makers would be people who are contributing to society, um, creating things, um, whether you're a builder or you're, you're making something for your town or village or, or even at a city level, you know, you're making a company, something like that, where you're trying to contribute. Uh, that's basic uh, definition of a maker, where you're trying not to do any harm. Destructors, ironically, uh, is almost a different form of makers. Sometimes people start out as feeling like they're makers, but don't realize that they're becoming destructors. So, for example, if you're you know, making um, technology or something that uh, has an adverse effect, maybe it's a, a military application that you didn't intend, but or you, you go out with uh, uh, good intentions, but then you start um, doing things just to preserve, uh, whether maybe you're the head of a company and you want to preserve the company, and then all of a sudden your priorities get mismatched where preserving the company is more important than um, aiding anybody else. Uh, uh, the, the example I used in the book was was Genghis Khan, you know, where he was massively abused and and was a prisoner for a time when he was when he was a child. But that turned into a vengeance. So on one end he was trying to free people um, from some of the confines, but on the other end he became one of the biggest destructors because then he became very oppressive in other ways. So it's it, it was kind of a slippery slope. And then um, the watchers are kind of the people on the sidelines, you know, the people who they don't want to take any risk in any particular way. They're not sure if they want to play. Um, you could categorize some folks. Um, there's some type of um, uh, monk groups that would be like that where, you know, they want to meditate and they want to become more spiritual, but they don't necessarily want to interact with the real world. And, and that doesn't really serve anybody. Um, in fact, it, I kind of perceive that as almost a little bit of a selfish situation because, you know, it's great to be Zen when you're all by yourself, um, but it's very difficult to be Zen when you're around your relatives and in everyday life. That's much more of a challenge. And so I think um, getting off the sidelines and being a participant uh, in the process is, is very important. And we've seen these types of metaphors um, in Indian mythology and a lot of other things. I mean, these these are not new ideas. These have been around uh, for eons. So, and I just bring these types of concepts back so people can pay attention to how they're behaving and are they actually contributing or are they uh, taking away uh, from society or are they just sitting on the sidelines not doing anything. Well, if you could elaborate on this, one of the, your key messages, uh, I, I'm quoting you, no one controls the fate of your soul or your spirit other than you. Test your belief system as though you were a career scientist. Any omnipotent source or God would welcome it, not discourage it. Yes, absolutely. And that kind of goes back to, you know, the challenging that fear of the rules statement. Um if you're looking at something divine, um, we call it God usually in, in the Western Hemisphere, um, God 
in that sense, should be fully open to any type of questioning because that falls under the umbrella of all that there is. So if you're, if you're really thinking of a divine that really is everything and is in you and is in me and we are a part of it, then questioning is a natural progression of that. And gaining knowledge is a natural progression of that. So um, even with your own spirituality, um, and the reason I say like a career scientist is scientists are kind of uniquely qualified in a way to learn how to test information. Um, we have, particularly in this day and age of the Internet, we have mountains of information coming at us at all the times. And it's very difficult, particularly for those who, who don't necessarily know how to filter out good information versus bad information. Uh, it can be very difficult to know what the junk information is versus something that is really credible. Um, so even in, in spiritualism, I think that's important. Um, you know, I could say that, you know, I worship the tree out in my backyard, but that doesn't make it, you know, the divine end all be all. Um, but I can find some way to test a relationship, um, with nature. And that, and that's a completely different concept when you're trying to do experiments to, um, to validate this. And there's a lot of scientists, ironically, out there doing this very thing. Um, but it's been very difficult for many of those scientists to get the word out, um, because of an, another phenomenon that we see called scientism. And scientism is almost like a religiosity in a sense uh, between scientists where they want to believe the classic science, but they don't want to integrate anything new because they think it counters what they already know. And even what scientists fail to realize is you know as much as you know, but we also know that there's many things we do not know. And there's even a lot of things that we don't even know that we don't know. And when you look at it from that concept, you always have to have that childlike mind and coming back to that, to be open to possibilities, but then test and verify those possibilities. Don't just take them because somebody says them or because it's written down in a book. Um, test it and verify it. Um, and that's how you can, you know, extract, you know, the good knowledge from knowledge that probably is, is not really worth it. And you emphasize that this enlightenment is a journey, uh, not just a destination. Absolutely. Yeah, I think... Uh, and this is a, this is a little bit more on my opinion is that and from what i've I've read in, in a lot of different philosophies is that uh, enlightenment is not really necessarily a place uh, some people think of it as nirvana or, or some place to get to a destination and I think that's a misnomer because really enlightenment is a way of being it's it's a pathway that you can be on um, and it's a very fine line. It's, it's difficult to stay on that because, you know, the daily stresses of life will oftentimes uh, bring you back down a notch. And, you know, we're on some days we're, we're very good at remaining balanced and, and very spiritual. And other days we're not so good. You know, we may be sick or there's other pressures going on. But, but that's just the way it works. So it's, it's, it's always important to try to be balanced uh, when you're doing these types of things. And the final bottom line goal is this unity that you talked about at the beginning, mm -hmm. that we are all to act as one. So we're combining all the science and all the spirituality and bringing us all together. Yeah, it's, what was interesting, I, when I was first started reading this, uh, reading this book, writing this book, um, I really wasn't sure where it was going. You know, it kind of took on a life of its own. Um, and in that process, what I started noticing uh, was that there was an increasing amount of evidence 
um, particularly when you look and understand the complexity sciences, uh, which are science, uh, sciences, to put it basically, of um, order emerging from chaos and things like that. That um, when you really look down at all the fundamental levels, even in, in fundamental physics, we already know that we're all made of the same stuff. Um, what's more interesting to me is that we're finding how, say, we're interacting at an atomic level or at a quantum level. And this is where I think a lot of the interesting innovations are, are, are happening. Uh, they've already got evidence. Um, they've studied at the IONS Institute and I've seen some of the data and talked to some of the investigators about this, where we actually have evidence where information can pass between uh, two people's minds that are entangled. And, and according to classic physics, that should be impossible. It should not occur. They've, you know, they set them up in isolated chambers where they have no other means of communication, and yet there's an ability to pass information from one mind over to another mind. So that's really impressive. That's really impressive. So... The title of the book, Spiritual Evolution, How Science Redefines Our Existence. And the author is Dr. Chad Kennedy. Chad, tell us how to get your book. Yes, um, probably the easiest way to get my book is if you just go to uh, drchadkennedy.com. That's probably the easiest way. And then um, on there, there's uh, information. There's a blog. There's also links to all different formats. Uh, the book is in the form of an ebook. Uh, it's also in the form of a hardback and a soft cover as well. Well, so, thank you, Chad. Thanks for being with us on Author Talk. Okay, thank you so much, Steve. It was great to be here. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Hey, moms, juggle your hats with our mom of many hats, Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. Moms are always juggling their hats. And sometimes it's easy for moms to forget their value when life calls for switching from role to role. But the ability to juggle so many hats is priceless. She is never just a mom. She's a decision maker, coordinator, creative genius, counselor, a friend, an authority, and a leader in her household. On Mom of Many Hats Radio, we'll be talking about the hats that you as a mom juggle. We'll acknowledge your importance and support in helping you and all moms to not just defend your value, but to believe in your value. For more on the show and Angie, check out her website, azmamaminihats.com. She is a strong woman. She is powerful. She is wonderful. And she is valuable. Mom of Many Hats with Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. Girlfriend It is on Togginet. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central with your hosts, Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan. This show is your chance to share, learn, laugh, and connect with other women. The girlfriended principle was born out of loss. Lisa had recently had her mother pass away from cancer, and my mom um, was murdered. A man just walking into a room and started a 23-second shooting spree. I think one of the things we both realized going through those tragedies is that you can be extremely okay and be extremely sad. Check out girlfriended.com. And then be a part of Girlfriended, the radio show, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central. You know, your boyfriend or, or your husband or whatever, they don't totally understand that emotional side to a woman like another woman does. And I think that's so important just to have mm-hmm. somebody that you go, she gets me. Check out the website, girlfriended.com. Don't miss Girlfriended with Patty Wyatt 
and Lisa Jernigan. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Chicago's Forgotten Tragedy, and the author is Bill Cosgrove, and Bill joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Bill. Good morning. We're going to read a couple of things you've written about your book. Uh, You say this, this is my newest book, Chicago's Forgotten Tragedy. It's a story of the 21 firefighters who were killed in the Chicago Stockyards Fire in 1910, just three days before Christmas, the greatest loss of firefighters since, of course, until 9-11. And uh, these 21 firefighters were killed. There were 19 widows and 35 orphan children. And you say they were forgotten by the new year of 1911. So in a very quick time, we forgot. And, of course, you haven't forgotten, and that's why you have uh, written this book. And there's more in this book besides this Chicago fire. What's what's the motivation here? Uh, Tell us about yourself, Bill. Well, I'm a retired Chicago fireman after 29 years on the Chicago Fire Department. Uh, I worked as a fireman on the east side of Chicago on Truck 15, which was the busiest hook and ladder in the city of Chicago, for uh, over 12 and a half years. And then I went onward to uh, on a snorkel company and then ended up into fire investigation, which I took a, a very, very interest in because I needed to know how fires started. It started to, after some 16 years on the fire department, I needed to know a little bit more about how fires originated. So I got into fire investigation and after several years in there, uh, a movie came to town to, to the city of Chicago called Backdraft. And uh, the uh, the director of the movie was Ron Howard, and he was looking for uh, volunteers to go to different fires throughout the city of Chicago and, and show the actors the different roles that we play. As a result, I had gotten into a situation where I had to make a call to tell Robert De Niro that we had a working fire at some 3 o'clock in the morning. And I picked him up at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel downtown in a fire vehicle with lights and siren. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, we went ahead to the fire with Ron Howard and, and Robert De Niro in the car. And they really enjoyed the experience of going to a fire and seeing it live in action, a real fire where people were injured and and the building was went into extra alarm fire. When we returned, Robert De Niro said he would like to go with me and me alone, not with Ron Howard. He was the director and Robert De Niro would then be the investigator. <clears throat> so I agreed to that. I, it didn't matter to me. I don't care who I took. It was enjoyable to take both men with me. But the, the next fire we went to, we went alone, Robert De Niro and I, and followed up 
with uh, a couple more fires, and one was an extra alarm fire on the north side where he developed a sore in his foot on the fire boot that he was wearing. He said, Bill, I gotta sit down, I gotta look at my foot, I gotta soar. And I thought, well, this is a fine time to do this, but let's go do it. So he sat down on somebody's front porch uh, in a neighborhood on the north side of Chicago. And I pulled his boot off, and sure enough, there was a cherry blister on the side of his foot. I said, where are your socks? He said, oh, I don't wear socks. I don't wear socks. <laughs> he said, listen, when you wear any galoshes like these, you have to have socks on. <laughs> so I removed my socks from my feet, put them on Robert De Niro's feet, and we finished the fire investigation, but I had no socks on them. <laughs> so when we got back to the Ritz-Carlton Hotel, he said, would you be my technical advisor? And I said, well, I don't know. You know, that's <laughs> you had to ask the fire department. And he said, don't worry, I'll take care of everything. By the time I got back to the firehouse with the fire car, my chief and several other people were waiting there and said, you're his technical advisor. <laughs> yeah. So they, so I, I went through a wonderful experience of being within the movie for some forty nine days. We were together, and uh, and from that I wrote a book well, called Robert De Niro and the Fireman. One of your four books, and uh, now you have this Chicago Stockyards fire. At least it starts out there. But you take us on a journey to other fires, even back to the Great Chicago Fire of eighteen seventy one. That's correct. I do. Uh, it was it was important for me uh, when I found out after building this monument. I built a monument for the Chicago firefighters who perished in this city <clears throat> as a result of getting killed at different fires. There, and as of today, there's 554 of them on this same wall on this monument that I built. After building the monument. It kept running through my mind that nobody ever spoke about these 21 firemen. In my 29 years on the Chicago firemen, as a fireman, it was I, I never heard anything about this fire of 21 people being killed, most in this country. That was in 1910, this Chicago Stockyards fire. It was called the Chicago Stockyards fire. It was at uh, 44th and Loomis Avenue inside the stockyards. What occurred was a fire occurred in a six-story brick warehouse loaded with hog heads and meat and whatever else they make out of cows and pigs. And there was a fire inside of a basement of this building. As the firefighters got the call, and they arrived on the scene, they had a bring their hose or lead out, we call it a lead out, lead out the hose some 300 feet along a long dock wooden with a wooden canopy over the top of it. Once down there, once they found the fire, they started to uh, 
put their engine lines on the fire, but they needed more. They needed more and more. This is a, and it was a very hard place to get into because they had boxcars backed up against the back of them. They had the fire in front of them and this big wooden canopy over the top of their heads. All of a sudden, the wall bulged out above them, and down came six stories of bricks and instantly killed all 21 firemen. Mm, goodness. Well, that's something that uh, obviously it's beyond comprehension of what firemen face and often in these situations uh, because it's always the unexpected, right? It's the, it's so unexpected. There's with all of the experience of a hundred years we have today, one year ago, I was giving this our hundredth year anniversary uh, commemoration to the twenty one firemen, and at the same time we were given the chem- the this uh, this uh, little uh, commendation to these gentlemen who were killed a hundred years ago. A roof of a building on the east side of Chicago collapsed and killed two firemen and injured 17 firemen. Hmm. 100 years to the date. Right. To the right. very, almost to the hour of these, the same fire. So today, even today, with today's um, knowledge of, of fires and the fire science we've, we have and the equipment, that we have and and the uh, everything we have we still are not able to to de- determine when a building is going to collapse suddenly and you're, that's the uh that's what happened just last year you're very unique uh as a firefighter because you're from a family of firefighters this is uh, a family uh history a family tradition dedication your father, I, uh, your father, my father was, a, was a fireman, and my he was a lieutenant on Squad Eight in Chicago, and he died as a result of smoke. Over many many years, he suffered a heart attack. As did my brother, who was a fireman for almost twenty years. He also suffered a heart attack. Now, your father was how old? My father was forty-six years old. And your brother? And my brother was 51 years old. And that's uh, typical, you say, uh, in firefighters because of the amount of smoke they take in. That's correct. Years ago, the firefighters didn't have this uh, self-breathing apparatus that we now have, which is basically uh, oxygen inside of a mask. There was none of that years ago. So... During those years, firemen went in to the best of their ability, fought it as hard as they could, and then they had to get out to get a breath of fresh air. Today, a firefighter can stay in there longer because he has uh, he has this equipment on, and and he's able to push forward into a fire scene and extinguish a little a little bit better than they did years ago. In your book, you also talk about a fire called the uh, Iroquois Theater Fire that claimed the lives of 603 innocent children and women. What a tragedy. That was probably uh, the hardest 
part of this book that I had to write. Um, every time I discovered more information about what really occurred and why it happened was enough to take it was enough to take you back two steps to say if they could have waited another three weeks this uh, more construction could have been done in this in this theater there were no exits the exits were blocked and locked there were no the doorways from the, the, into the theater pulled inward hmm. the fire started on the front uh, stage on the main stage when the curtain uh, an arc light ignited the curtain and there was a flash fire in a matter of minutes this fire burned over the top and up onto the ceiling killing 603 people and most of them were stacked at the doors trying to get out of this theater hmm, wow. and the ones on the balconies couldn't get down the stairways because they were gated to keep people from going up into the uh, into the seats upstairs and the fire escapes in the top of the building that were supposed to be ready for uh, to escape if there is a fire when you went out that door you fell three stories to the alley of the building what year was this that was in 1903 well you're of all your work in building a monument to all of these uh, great men who have given their lives uh, to fight fires, to uh, save lives, families, and others who are involved with these terrible fires. Uh, this book is a tribute uh, to them, and uh, you certainly have an incredible career bill as a fireman and we appreciate all your service and your father and your brother and of course since 9-11 we've have a whole new view as well you know and and suddenly more attention to firemen than ever before i hope that uh, america has uh, has awakened to the sacrifices that firemen make do you think that's uh, a lot clearer today Oh yes, I, you know, uh, when 9-11 occurred, suddenly the firefighter and police officer in this country were catapulted right up into the front row. They, and people now realize that they depend on them to protect their loved ones. And today we have firefighters all over this country who risk their lives every day, even though the the uh, many of the cities that we work in are are in turmoil and they're trying to cut back manpower but in in order to cut back any manpower they're they're also cutting back safety and we need the the every man that you could get at a fire scene when you first get there there's never been enough men or, or firefighters, period. Yes, it's, uh, you know, firefighters for the last 150 years have been America's domestic defenders. They've been out there, it doesn't matter whether it's a tornado, a hurricane, a fire, a crash vehicle, or some stupid scaffold dangling from a 
hundred-story building in Chicago. They call us. They call the Chicago Fire Department, and we respond. The title of the book, Chicago's Forgotten Tragedy, and the author is Bill Cosgrove. Bill, tell us how to get your book. The best way to get my book is you can go to my website, which is www.idofires.com or through authorhouse.com. Well, thank you for being with us on Author Talk, Bill. Well, thank you, Steve. I appreciate your uh, listening to my garb. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Whether you're four and a half or 100, you can retrain your brain. Learning RX, the radio show, is on toginet.com Thursday mornings at 8 a.m. Central Time with Martin Kruger. Learning RX programs are quick, they're efficient, they're life changing, and they're permanent. Unlike tutoring, cognitive skills training or brain training targets the root issue causing learning struggles. Time and money spent on chronic tutoring is a clear signal of cognitive skill deficiency. That's where Learning RX comes in. Call today, 903 617 6899. 903 617 6899. Then join us for the show here every Thursday morning at 8 a.m. And take advantage of the power it holds to improve your life. There are so many brain training issues that Learning RX can help you with. It's not a product, it's an experience. So join us for Learning RX, the radio show with Martin Kruger. Thursday mornings at 8 a.m. Central on Toginet.com. Is there more living for you to do? Yes. Start living inspired. Be here for Living Inspired with Trisha Goyer. Thursday afternoons at 4, 3 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Trisha will dig deep into topics that matter most to women, inspiring women to make a change in their own lives and to make a difference in the world, and maybe even deep within their own hearts. Trisha is a wife, mom, speaker, family expert, and author of 24 books. For more information on Trisha and Living Inspired, go to her website, trishagoyer.com. That's T-R-I-C-I-A-G-O-Y-E-R.com. Trisha's vision is to be the voice of hope and possibility for women of all ages. Her intention is to serve ordinary women by encouraging extraordinary things with God's help. Trisha expresses real life, real hope for real women. Is there more living for you to do? Yes. Start living inspired. Living Inspired with Trisha Goyer. Thursday afternoons at 4, 3 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, The Fifth Woman, A Rick Morgan Mystery. And the author is G. William Parker. And George joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, George. Hi, Steve. How are you doing today? The Fifth Woman, uh, you say, is a mystery wrapped within a love story. The main character, Rick Morgan works hard to unravel two mysteries, one old, one new. So we're going to talk about the old and the new, and we're going to talk about this love story. And, of course, Rick Morgan, he's uh, quite a guy. He's a man's man, isn't he? Well, we would like to think he is, yes. And uh, a lot of women chase him around. Uh, That they do. Yes. So, but he... uh, has an interesting job. And before we get into the particulars, the details about Rick and others, uh, what was the motivation to write this kind of story? Well, 
actually, the motivation goes back probably 40-plus uh, years. When I was in school, I used to love to write. Um, I have one of those imaginations that people can't figure out. They say it's kind of quirky. I see things a little differently than other people. Um, when I was in college and in, in high school, I, I used to I used to love to write mysteries. Uh, then, when I was 21 years old, I got married. I went in. I graduated from school. I went into the corporate world. Uh, bought a home. Had two kids. And you know, work seventy hours a week, and uh, I just I didn't have time. Everything got put by the wayside. And then a few years ago, I was offered a uh, a position um, to sit on the board of a nonprofit in San Francisco, and I did not take it. But the uh, uh, the, uh, the CEO of it, the founding person of this uh, foundation, she's an author. She's uh, done four books, and we were just talking over dinner one night, and she says, "Gee, George, if you like to write." Why don't you start doing it again? So I went home and I started doing it again. And uh, because I've always wanted to, I, I love mysteries. You know, do you remember the old Columbo show? Oh, you know, yes. Oh, yeah. Like this, you know, <laughs> and everything? I wanted to be that. Peter Falk, he's the greatest, isn't he? You know, and <laughs> yeah. there, was a, there was a character I remember years ago, George Papard played Banachek. It was on the NBC, I think, Mystery Movies. Mm-hmm. Well, I was, a young, I was young at that time, and I always wanted to be. An insurance investigator. Always. I mean, that was my life dream. I didn't want to be an accountant. I wanted to be an investigator. Of course, I never did. But um, so I decided to relive my dream and to start putting that down on paper so other people could enjoy it. And that's what I'm doing. So The Fifth Woman, it has a very dramatic start to it, of course. Uh, this kind of mystery demands that kind of start. Uh, a naked dead, the uh, a body of a high roller found in a Vegas hotel suit, and of course he was insured for a lot of money, $20 million. Correct, yes. So Rick Morgan, he works for that insurance company. Rick Morgan is a, was called CAE, is a chief audit executive for a major insurance company. Now, chief audit executive is a, is a man, he reports to the board. He has He's got the power for to go into the books, to go into procedures, to do everything. He's the guy that can go anywhere in the company and do anything, and uh, that is that. That's what he does. And on this, um, he's in a routine audit situation in the city of San Francisco, one of the offices, and he happens to stumble across this death benefit that happened ten years prior, and he's curious, and he just starts to dig. And when the facts are vague, cold, or missing, he starts to dig more. And a bizarre puzzle starts to emerge. And he works with, uh, let's see, we he works with the lovely Human Resources Director, Caroline. Caroline is correct, yes. And she has a, a unique uh, part in the story. They do. Uh, there's actually, uh, the book is called, you know, The Fifth Woman, so you realize there's five women involved. And each one of them has a story, you know, uh, to play out, you know, with Rick Morgan. The question is, is, uh, what do they know? Is it all a great big plot? Who's the innocent one? Who isn't? And Rick begins to unwind things. But Caroline, yes, she's the first one. She's the one that Rick Morgan violates company policy with from time to time between the sheets. So this high roller named Johnson, uh, who died in this Vegas uh, hotel suite, who's uh, insured for $20 million, Mm -hmm. 
What his what what kind of tie does he have to uh, to anyone in the story? Is there a in fact he is tied to someone, isn't he? Oh, he's tied to more than you think. Yes, uh, Johnson Johnson like I said, was uh, when Rick Morgan uh, starts to go into this. You know, he was like I said killed ten you know, died ten years before in the Vegas Hotel Suite. And uh, as, as Rick Morgan, with the help of Vince Corino, when he realizes that there may be eyes or ears in the company that know something about this, and he, he realizes he's being played a little bit, he goes to the outside and brings in an uh, ex-CLPD uh, homicide detective named Vince Corino. And together, they begin to dig from Vegas to Seattle to uh, San Francisco to L.A. They begin to dig. They begin to talk to people. And what they find is a bizarre puzzle that Rick is not sure what the, the final picture is, what the answer is, but he keeps digging. And at the end of um, the end of book one, especially, um, there's a there's a unique twist. Then of course we have book two and book three, and book three has the final you know final ending with the final twist that that explains everything. Every piece falls into place. But it keeps the reader it keeps the reader on edge. We try in every chapter to end with a, a question, something that would provoke the reader to think. So does Rick know Jack Weber who sold this man the original policy? Jack Weber was the uh was the uh, manager of the San Francisco branch when that policy was sold. And because and it was a key man policy, and you know, for you or your, your listeners, if you're not uh, familiar with a key man policy, it's basically two people own a business, they insure each other. So if one of them dies, there's enough money there to buy the you know buy out the business from the estate. And so when you sell something twenty million dollars, that's that that's big time. That's big times. So because he sold two, he was promoted to um, the home office. And there's an interesting relationship between Jack Weber and um, and Caroline that Rick finds out about. So Caroline, there's woman. Uh, there's at least one woman. Now tell us about some of these. Uh, there's four other women that play right. a very important part in this plot and in this mystery. Kathy, Kathy, when Caroline uh, leaves um, Rick and moves away. Kathy steps in. It's almost a too good to be true. She's cute. She's sexy. She's funny. She's also the branch manager for the San for, from the Santa Barbara office. Um, she entices Rick. They develop a relationship. Uh, however, she has ties also to uh, Jack Weber. So Rick begins to see now he's being played, but he can't put his finger on exactly what or who or why. You know, so. Kathy, there's a series of events where Kathy, um, all of a sudden, she leaves as well, which ushers in the third woman. And that is Crystal, the woman with the mysterious past. The woman Rick meets at the airport. He looks over his Wall Street Journal. There she is in the type chair of Levi's. She looks good. There's no free tables. So he invites her to sit with him, and a relationship develops. But what? But what? The question is: Is is she or is she not re- related to this uh, to this conspiracy? Something Rick has to find out. And then the next woman. The next woman is Amanda. 
the corporate attorney, young, smart, um, again, sexy, uh, drives a Porsche. She, uh, Rick meets her through um, his friend Steve. Rick, uh, Steve works for a company um, in, in the motion picture field. She's a corporate attorney. Uh, Steve invites Rick to come and spend some time with him. Rick wants to get away, clear his mind. He meets Amanda, the attorney. But it's interesting that Amanda may have a connection, may have a connection, I say, to this whole thing. But the question is, how could she have a connection if she works for the company that Rick's friend Steve works for? There's no, there can't be a connection, but, but there might, just might be. So Rick Morgan has to investigate that as well. But the fifth woman itself is the one in San Francisco. She's never described. She's, uh, we don't know what she physically looks like. The reader will not know her name or her age or what she does or anything. But Rick Morgan keeps going back to her. There's a relationship there, a platonic relationship there. The question is, how is she, is she related to this whole mystery as well? That's something you have, the reader will have to find out. And she's the one who says not everything is as it appears no. to be. No, that's actually that's it. That was actually uh, Caroline. Oh, beginning. okay, Caroline. Caroline wanted Rick to leave with her, and that was Rick's very, very first clue that something was up. Rick, be careful. Not everything's what it appears to be. And he looks at her and says, "Even you?" And she says, "Yes, even me," and walks out the door. So they, and Rick will keep going all through the book. He, in fact, you all three books. He'll keep going back to. Well, Caroline's words, not everything is what it appears to be. And Rick needs to find out through his investigation with the help of Vince and some other people just exactly what she meant. Who or what is not what it appears to be. Of course, this bizarre puzzle also has a piece that has a mysterious disappearance of a former United States congressman. It does. It also has an FBI who wants him to drop the investigation. It also has a car accident that went back 30 years, 30 years with a family where two ch children were left orphaned, three adults died in, in this car accident. All of it is connected. Rick just has to find out how and why. Well, this is a page-turner, there's no doubt. Uh, turns and twists uh, will keep the reader thinking and guessing the answers to many questions that are raised by Rick's investigation. Yes, it, 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 it's a lot of fun, and I'll tell you what. Uh, I'll tell you one of the, the best parts is is when you have somebody send you an email or somebody you don't even know, and they will just I'll tell you, I thought I had the answer. I turned the page or two chapters later, I found out I didn't. Or at the very very end, they'll say I never saw it coming. That's what makes it fun. Well, it's the kind of story that a lot of people uh, just want to read for good escape. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, this whole thing, Steve, our lives today, you know, I'm, I'm in the corporate world. You know, I'm in a consultant, and I, you know, and I, I, you know, buy companies, you know, certain things on their, you know, their, in their books and things like that. But you, you look at the world, everybody's just kind of like in a humdrum reality these days, you know? And if I can just 
take that person, that lady, that man, and move them into what I would like to say a fantasy world, you know, an unreal world, for 10 minutes, and they escape, just escape to it, I'm happy. Because they'll walk away with a smile on their face. And there's not a lot of things in this world that make us smile today. And you want to just put the reader into the investigator's shoes and see what happens. So you want everyone to just kind of become Rick. We do. And this is one of the reasons why, you know, my novel my novel is very, very different than, you know, a lot of mystery authors out there. I don't spend a lot of time in detail, like describing people, places, or events, because I want the reader to go in and use their imagination you know, to create what they think it will be. And by doing so, they become more part of the story at that point. And, uh, for example, like I said, the fifth woman herself, I, do, I don't describe her. Height, weight, color of hair. There's nowhere in the book, name anywhere. But if you ask five people who read the book, describe her for me. And they'll each come up with a different, you know, idea of what she is, what she looks like. I never described her. They're using their imagination. And when we use our imagination, we're able to escape more and become more part of the story. So, please, I hope. The Fifth Woman is the title of the book. The Fifth Woman, a Rick Morgan mystery. It's the first of a trilogy, and the author is G. William Parker. Yes, George, tell us how to get your book. Well, it's available. Uh, it's not available in bookstores at this point, but it is available at Amazon, um, Barnes and Noble. I mean, just you know, every retailer out there you can order the book from. We've got, in fact, we've got a special going right now with Amazon uh, on the Kindles. Through the end of January, we've got the book, the price lower to the book, to just two dollars and ninety nine cents from its normal nine ninety nine, just to help. You know, everybody's got, you know, it's a hard time for people this Christmas, so we just want to make it a little easier for them to get it. And your website? The website is not completed yet, I'm here to say. It will be gwilliamparker.com. It is, it is still under construction. We appreciate you, George, for being with us on Author Talk. Well, thank you, thank you so much.